Alright, it's a little windy out here, but we're going to get started today with the 140th Psalm. We've got a change in venue this morning, and uh, hopefully it, uh, the cameras will work alright. But here we go, the 140th Psalm, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips, Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me, Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted, Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into the deep pits, that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for a chance to get together and to uh, praise you, to uh, read your word, and also to preach from it. And uh, I pray that what we do here today will be glorifying to you and will bring great honor to the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for Abram the Hebrew, who was brought out of Ur of the Chaldeans and given the land of promise and the eternal promise that you gave to the descendants of him to possess the land and how even today there they are dwelling in the land. Thank you for these things. It shows us the surety of what you are doing in human history so we can rely on every other promise you've given us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for every good blessing you've given us. All of this we say in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, we have another psalm before we get started. It's the 144th psalm. This is also a psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow down, you heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, on a harp of ten strings. I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. Okay, so uh, one thing that I've gotten in the habit of doing before our sermon is to take a small portion of the New Testament and evaluate it. And uh, we left off last week at Romans 1.17, so we're going to start with Romans 1.18 through 32. And uh, I know that there is information in here which is pertinent to the world in which we live in today. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I'm also not going to get very deep into what Paul says here, it's pretty obvious what he is talking about and how we need to handle these things. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Paul says that we intentionally suppress the truth, and we do that because of unrighteousness. We want to work out our own wickedness. We want to work out our own uh, way of doing things apart from the Lord. And in order to do that, we have to actually suppress the truth. In other words, the truth of God is evident. The Bible speaks of this. We can tell of the nature of God simply by the trees around us and by the fact that we're here when instead of there being nothing at all. The fact that we are here, the fact that there's a tree over there proves that there is a creator. And we have to suppress these and so many other evidences of God in order to come to the point where we want to exercise our own unrighteousness. In verse 19, he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. I talked about it a little bit. He's going to talk about it a little bit more right here. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, and that means the invisible attributes of God, his justice, his truth, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his holiness, these attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. All of this here demonstrates to us these attributes of God, and they are clearly seen by the things he's made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People that suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness are without excuse. They can never say when they stand before the judgment seat of God, well, I didn't know about Jesus Christ. That is inexcusable because God has already revealed what we need to know about him from his scriptures. Verse 21, or I'm sorry, not from his scriptures, from his creation itself. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and were full, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. We know God. Every person on the face of the earth knows God. And yet we, in our foolishness, are not willing to stand up and say, I acknowledge this creator. I'm not willing to do it. We become futile in our thoughts, and our foolish hearts are darkened because of it. Verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And what's he talking about there? We could talk about any professor in almost any college in America or around the world today. Very wise people by the standards of the world, and yet they have become fools because they deny God. Even though they have all of this wisdom, they're denying the very God that allows them to have that wisdom and to grow in that knowledge verse 23 and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things he's specifically speaking about idolatry there at one time this is my backyard at one time we had all kinds of Buddha statues around here and we had all kinds of things now we didn't actually worship them but the very fact that we had those there must have been to us some type of a talisman like oh man we're going to be blessed because we got a Buddha here or a couple of feng shui dogs over here or whatever, some crazy thing like that, when in fact, this is what the Bible is speaking of. Instead of glorifying the God who created things, we take something from creation and we sculpt it into an image and we use that as our uh, source of uh, blessing. You know, people have, like I say, feng shui hanging in their house or they'll, they'll kiss certain things or they'll, they'll acknowledge things like horoscopes or other type of things like that. All of this is evidence of what Paul is trying to say. And so what is the answer? Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. The next logical step from idolatry and worshiping the creation is to allow ourselves 
to become lustful of that creation and other people within that creation. And God gives them up to it. We suppress the knowledge of the truth of God. And so God says, all right, have it your own way. And what do we do? The lust of our hearts. We dishonor our bodies among ourselves. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We are now completely subservient to the creation. We're worshiping it. We're giving it our allegiance rather than to God. And God has allowed that to happen because we have suppressed the truth of him in order to come to this point. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. It could not be any clearer what Paul is talking about. He's talking about homosexuality and lesbianism. People get to the point where they are so utterly depraved that they no longer use what God has intended for good in a good way. And not only do they not use it in a good way, but they actually abuse it by committing acts of perversion. And these are the natural results from rejecting the Creator. And he's going through this logical sequence of starting here, getting to this point, getting to this point, to the point where we are finally committing the most abominable acts possible. Here we go. Uh, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. There's a whole list of things that we do here when we reject God, and God just simply hands us over to these things, and this is the natural end of that rejection of Him. And finally, it finishes in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, right there we know that the judgment of God is coming. We have no doubt about it. The judgment of God is coming on the world, and we know this intuitively. And even though we know it, we still commit all of these things, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We have people in our government that are practicing homosexuals. And not only do they do this in their own perversion, but they also try to get other people to practice in these things by showing their power, by showing their, their uh, ability to sway people's opinions about political matters until it becomes a moral issue within a society. And this is what Paul is talking about here. We cannot, as Christians, condone this type of a lifestyle and call ourselves Christians. It is absolutely impossible. There's no way to do it. I was, somebody sent me a link to a church. They said, maybe you'd like to pastor this church. It's here in Sarasota. And the first thing I did was went to their statement of faith, and their statement of faith says that they are inclusive of this type of nonsense, that they are actually condoning this in their church. And I thought, I'm not even going to respond to that post. If somebody is going to send me a link to a church like that, I'm not even going to respond to it, because that is how morally depraved people have become, as they think that this is something that they can get away with when God, in his word, has said this is not something that we can condone in any way, shape, or form. So don't mean to be uh, too long on that with uh, our section from Romans today, but 
the consequences of our actions are known and they are knowable and God will hold us to account for each and every one of them. All right, one thing more before we get started is uh, you know that I like to do uh, Today in History uh, before I actually get into the sermon, and I have a few points from Today in History today. The first is that in 362, Emperor Julian issued an edict banning Christians from teaching in Syria, and that follows right along throughout history until 2012. We have people banning Christians from speaking in America. We have the government working to do away with our religious rights. And I have no doubt that very soon, if we continue to elect the people that we've been electing in our political offices, that we will be completely banned from any Christian context at all in America by people that say that they are Christians. So what we need to do as human beings and voters in America is to say, I am not going to go by what somebody says, I'm going to go by what somebody does. I'm going to watch their actions, and in the end we will see every single time the difference between people that truly uphold biblical values and who only say they do. But most people are not willing to do that, and we are facing real straits. In 1775, the British took Bunker Hill outside of Boston. We all know about the Battle of Bunker Hill. Well, today is the day that happened. And then in uh, 1837, really wonderful working person, Charles Goodyear, received the first of his patents. The patent was for a process that made rubber easier to work with. And before I came here today, I went online to read about Charles Goodyear just to refresh myself on his story. And this man was, I don't want to use the word possessed, but he was absolutely driven to find uses for rubber. And it took him years and years and years. He lost six children during the process. He lost his entire family fortune. He worked tire, tirelessly in order to have this come about. And he, the guy was just absolutely willing to put forward his efforts in order to make the world a better place. And as I posted, I took that and I linked it on Facebook. And as I posted it, I said, Today, we have exactly the opposite attitude in our nation today, where people that do work are being penalized for their industry and their hard work, and what they are earning rightfully is being taken from them, and it's being transferred to people that have not worked for it. And we cannot tolerate that in this nation. What we need to do is to exercise our votes in a way which will get people that do that type of thing out of office so that we can once again become productive and we can be like Charles Goodyear, who is willing to sacrifice his own fortune in order to make a better life for his uh, family in the future. Then we have in 1963, kind of ties in with our first point today, the U.S. Supreme Court banned the required reading of the Lord's Prayer and Bible in public schools. And from that time on, you can see how society in America has morally degraded and morally degraded and morally degraded from this point, when this edict came down from the U.S. Supreme Court. And I am absolutely as certain as I am standing here right now that 9-11, September 11, 2001, was judgment on this nation for exactly this type of behavior. Taking God and saying, we don't want anything to do with you. We are not going to allow you into our schools, into our classrooms, into our lives. We have to hide in order to worship God. And I believe that that judgment came because of it, and I believe that the other judgments which are coming will all be a result of our falling away from the truth of the 
gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of it in a public setting. And then in 1703, one more thing happened. John Wesley, the cleric and Christian theologian, was born. We all know that he became the founder of Methodism, which is the Methodist Church. And uh, he was a tireless worker for Jesus Christ. And I don't always agree with all of his points of doctrine, but I do agree with the fact that he loved the Lord Jesus and he got out there and he told people about it. And he was tireless in doing that. He actually was an Anglican minister and uh, he simply couldn't agree with the policies and the way that they were running the church. And so he stepped out and said, we have to have a better way. And you have to stand up and applaud people that are willing to do that, that hold to their personal convictions. And it's becoming less and less in our nation today. All right, having said all of that, we're going to get into our sermon today, which is Genesis 14, 1 through 16, and this is called Avram the Hebrew. One of the things that I have noticed personally that really affects people to the point where they never, ever accept Jesus Christ or that unevenly affects their walk with them to the point where they are always questioning his goodness and his love are things like war, death, famine, and suffering. These are also used by people who hate God, like self-proclaimed atheists, as an unwise basis for rejecting him. I can't tell you how many discussions I have been on on the internet, or posts I've joined into on the internet, where people use these things to attack the very God that allows them to make their attacks against him. And I know one person here today that uh, has joined into those same posts, and she knows what is being relayed right now, is because people will actually attack God and say, God can't be all loving because of these type of things. These are also the people who hate God in moral ways as well. And as we said in the, the book of uh, Romans just a few minutes ago, they get to the point where they are working against God in order to work out their own moral wickedness. So that's just another point that's tied in with that. And what I'd like you to do is to just think about it. I mean, if you just simply think this through, it is so stupid and it is so childish to blame God for the world's troubles and then expect that you have every right to speak badly of him, to call him names, or to claim that he must not exist. That really is the height of hypocrisy. Anyway, I'm saying this now because today we are going to see the first war recorded in the Bible. And of course, along with war comes suffering. We have death, we have plagues, we have famine, we have sorrow. All of those things are tied in with war. This is the first war the Bible records. The people who want to dismiss the God of the Bible will use these things in order to show how cruel he is or how incompetent he is because he allows these things to happen. But then they turn around and they exercise their free will by sleeping with somebody's wife, something that will cause its own little war. Or they will do one of a million other things which will cause anger and division in another person or in another group of people without ever considering that God simply allowed them to work out their own life. And if God didn't stop them, he'd say that they were being, or they would say that he is being unfair. If you just think it through, as you go out about your life this week, it makes absolutely no sense. You'll, you'll see as you're thinking this process through that things make much more sense when you're dealing with people who have free will. If not, then there would be absolutely no possibility of loving God either because any forced love would be no love at all. So keep these things in mind and don't get 
distracted or don't get sidetracked by people who are atheists or who are God-haters, and they think they have a good argument against the God that they claim they don't believe in. They don't. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Micah. It's verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And we look forward, even today, to the day when Christ will reign on earth and war is ended forever. But until that day, we should accept that God is in control, even of wars that occur in the past, that occur in the present, that occur even into our future. It happens not because God desires it, but because he allows it. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. And that brings us to our first thought of the day, which is the warring of the nations. This is chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elassar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedolaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. There are times when you are reading the Bible, and you may wonder to yourself, why is all of this recorded here? A very good example of this, if you've ever read the book of Acts, is at the end of the book of Acts, is chapters 27 and 28, where Paul is on a sailing journey from Israel up to Rome. And while he's on his way, they get into a storm, they're lost at sea, they have a shipwreck, they end up on an island, and then finally they get up to Rome. And you have to ask yourself, why is all of this recorded in here? It's a very nice story, but it doesn't really seem to tie into anything, especially when it takes up such a large portion of the book. But these are the times that we need to actually dig into the accounts, and we need to go verse by verse and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? And the account today is very similar to that. We have minute details of a battle, and these details include the names of people, the countries they come from, and who they are fighting against. But when you're done, other than saying, okay, you may not have come to any real big conclusion as to why the story is even given in the first place. There have been billions of skirmishes throughout history. We've had wars all around the world since the day that man came to earth. Why did God tell us about this one particular war to start off the wars in the Bible? We note here that this is the first time that the war is actually recorded in the Bible, but it is not the first war in history. And I say this because these verses tell us that the rebelling nations served this guy, Cato Leomer, for 12 years before they rebelled. The logical assumption is that he waged war with them in the past, and then he subjected them to tribute. This battle, then, is recorded because it affects God's people, who are now in the land of Canaan. They have entered the picture, and the other wars had no bearing on God's people. Any other wars have happened as war happened throughout history. People want, people take, and people die. They destroy each other, and they exercise their own free will. And when they do, and they're the victors, they boast about their great strength and how great their achievements are. But when they lose, what happens? They blame God. How could he allow all of this to happen? 
this is just the way of the world. Nobody ever questions why God allowed someone to win the battle. They're the victors and they say, oh, why did God allow that to happen? Nor do they ever question, oh, why did my poor enemies have to die? It's only when things go wrong that people ask the question of God. And I'm bringing this up now so that you understand that it is the weaker in faith. And I don't mean to be hard on anybody in this. I just want you to understand. It is the weaker in faith who question God's ways when bad, bad things happen in their lives. He is sovereign over his creation. We are man and we are a part of that creation. In the end, we have absolutely no right to hold our fist in God's face and tell him how things ought to turn out in our own lives. And I'm not saying that we don't all do this because I do it as well. But the stronger the faith, the less complaining when tragedy strikes. If anybody wants proof of that, just read the book of Job, a man considered righteous because of his patience in trials and loss and troubles to the point where he lost everything. And yet he got down into the, the uh, ground. He had dust and ashes. He was sitting in dust and ashes. And he says, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord after losing everything. And this is a person that is strong in their faith. So we want to remember to give God the credit for the victories that we win, and we also want to give God the praise when we lose. If you do these things, then you will be living the life of a faithful Christian. We all have free will, each and every one of us, just as the nations which war against each other. When things go bad, it's normally because of a bad decision. If something goes bad in our house, it's because of one of our own bad decisions. It's not always that way, but it is normally because of our own bad decisions. And I can tell you, every bad thing that happens in my house is my fault. I have no doubt about it. I've got the perfect wife. I've got perfect children. Bad things happen because of my own bad decisions. And I hope that's a comfort to you because, you know, we all have things that happen. And we sometimes need to look in the mirror and say, this is my problem. So let's not blame God when these times do come. But let's rather try to see his hand in it and how we can learn the lesson that he intended for us to learn from it. Another thing that we're seeing in the verses that we read a moment ago is the beginning of a particular type of conflict which continues even to this day. These nations had aligned with each other, but they were nations that had just not too long ago been separated at the time of the Tower of Babel. In the conduct of nations, alliances are made and people who may not really like each other work together for a commonly shared goal. As the world's superpower, here's an example, America has alliances with all kinds of nations. We had a treaty with Kuwait back in the 1990s. And what happened when we had that treaty? Iraq came in and they attacked them. And this was a test of our faithfulness to our treaty. Was it worth the paper that it was printed on? If not, then all of the other nations that we had signed treaties with would know that we couldn't be trusted to take care of them either. We may or may not personally have agreed with uh, George Bush Sr. who conducted the first Gulf War, but he did the right thing in standing up for Kuwait because he had a we had a treaty with him. And this is the way of the world that we live in, and often people who are innocent will get caught in the crossfire. One of them in today's story is a guy named Lot. There are four overall points to be seen in this chapter, and we're not gonna finish the chapter today, but we can break it down in anticipation of what is ahead. 
The first is that there is a war involving the king of Sodom and four other kings who rebel against their oppressors. The second is that Lot, Avram's nephew, is taken captivity during the battle. The third thing is that Avram will go and rescue him from the captivity during a battle which he wages against the conquering forces. And the fourth item to note is that Avram, his return, when he comes back to the land of Canaan, he encounters two specific people. One is the king of Salem, and the other is the king of Sodom. This chapter will be the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to him that God would make his name great. The battle is waged in the war, the, I'm sorry, the battle is waged in the area of a place called Sidim, which is now where the Dead Sea is located. Sidim means fields or plowed lands, and to stand there today and look at that area, plowed lands are the very last thing that you could imagine there. I know Kelly's been there, I think Rhoda's been to the Dead Sea. You, you could never imagine it being uh, a valley of plowed lands. The land is absolutely a barren waste, and it drops down to the very lowest spot on the face of the earth, which is 1,388 feet below sea level. There are some plantations that are there now right along the Dead Sea, but they are either desert crops like date palms, which grow in that type of an environment, or they are things that are watered by modern irrigation. Other than that, there is nothing that grows there. But the Bible records that at the time of Avram, the land was a fertile valley and it was known for its plowed fields. It is almost impossible to think that there was ever anything there ever anything there like that and it was only 4,000 years ago but this is what the Bible says and it was written at a time when people didn't dispute it it was just shortly this was written just shortly after that time and nobody disputed it so we can be absolutely confident that this really was the way it was you come to verse 5 in the 14th year Cato Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim the Zuzim and Ham the Emim and Shava Kiriathaim and the Horites in the, the, their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. So these people had paid tribute for 12 years and finally got sick of it and they rebelled in the 13th year. And they're not going to send any more stuff back up to these kings in the east. And when they realized, these kings in the east realized that they weren't getting any benefit in the 13th year, the four kings of the east gathered together in the 14th year and they headed to Canaan to reestablish their authority over the people who had rebelled. Now this scenario is going to be played out again and again and again in the Bible as you read through its pages. The book of Kings and Judges, they're full of this type of stuff. A nation will conquer one nation and tribute will be paid to the conquerors until one of a couple things happens. One of them is that the conquering nation gets soft, it gets sloppy, and they lose out, all right? Another one is that the conquered nation gets strong enough to rebel and to fight against their conquerors. And the third thing that might happen is that the conquered nation makes an alliance with other nations, and together they overthrow the conquerors. And this has been happening ever since biblical times as well. We have the Roman Empire, which overthrew nations all the way from Rome, all the way up as far as England. But eventually, it just simply faded away under its own weight. And because of the constant little battles that were going on, and another thing that brought down the Roman Empire, along with immorality, 
is the fact that they started to tax their people very heavily and they started to redistribute that wealth to people that weren't working and they started to have large government programs and if that doesn't sound like something that is happening in our own life today you need to wake up because that is exactly one of the reasons why this massive empire suddenly dissolved the same thing is true with england at one time the saying was true that the sun never sets on the british empire but eventually because of mismanagement because of a lack of discipline and also because of overextension they too faded from the scene as a world empire and as i said america is heading in exactly that same direction and the world is being lined up right now for the end times where israel will again be the head of the nations isaiah looks forward to that beautiful period which is coming 2700 years ago and his words march ever closer to the, their fulfillment let me read you what it says from isaiah chapter 2 now it shall come to pass in the latter days this has never happened this is something that is future that the mountain of the lord's house a mountain is a picture of a government or a a group of people a, a, a mountain in other words the mountain of the lord's house shall be established on top of the mountain so you have zion jerusalem being the highest mountain in the world and all the other mountains are subservient to it that shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it many people shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of zion meaning jerusalem in the land of israel for out of zion shall go forth the law and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. As faithful believers in Jesus Christ, we are waiting for that wondrous day when he returns and he sits literally on the throne of David, ruling in righteousness among the nations of the world. But going back to our verses, it said that on the way to deal with the rebels in the land of Canaan, they attacked the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horites. And after this, they turned back around and attacked all of the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites. These kings did not just come after the rebels. They attacked all the surrounding nations as well. And they probably did this for several reasons. The first was they were showing their strength to the surrounding nations as a warning not to make alliances with the nations they conquered. They probably also wanted to increase the number of nations that would pay tribute to them and keep them so busy that they wouldn't even think of making alliances. And the third reason is probably to plunder the people enough to keep their war campaign going. And this is a lot like what Hitler did when he ruled Germany. Sometimes he did it with false alliances. If you remember, he signed an alliance with a hugely naive Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain comes back to England and he holds this little piece of paper up and he says, we have peace. When in fact he had just signed the execution of thousands and thousands of the British citizens in a war that was coming very soon. He also did it in blitzkrieg raids when he came against Poland and he just overthrew them and he would use their resources to keep his war effort going. And then he had longer protracted wars like in Russia. And as he moved further into Russia, he would take all of their resources and keep feeding his army. So believe it or not this type of conflict doesn't just happen in a military sense but it also happens in politics as well and i want to warn you of this the left in our nation has been waging all-out war on the right 
anyone who disagrees with them will come under their attacks and they will attack their policies and anything that you say is fair game to them. What they can't win through the vote, and I assure you they can't win through the vote because conservatives outnumber liberals. And I'm talking about the ideology, about two to one in America. So what do they do? They win through their troops that are lined up in the media. They win through the unions that use strong arm tactics. And they also go to the courts and they get into litigation and they wear people down in that way. War, though, never affects just the people directly under attack. It affects those who stand idly and blindly by and naively hope that things will turn out for the best. By the time these kings had gotten to their main targets of attack, many other people groups have been affected by their cunning. And may we in America be more willing to defend our rights now before they're gone, just like all of these people that were overthrown in the land of Canaan. That brings us to verse 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Soar, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedoleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the Bible here returns to the account of the main forces lined up for battle, which was mentioned in verses one and two. But this time the rebels are mentioned first and the attackers are mentioned last. In other words, if you go back and read both accounts in verse one, it is from the vantage point of the kings of the east coming down, we will attack. But if you read from verse eight, which we just looked at, it is they are mentioned from the vantage point of the people who are in the land of Canaan, we will defend. The four kings from the east say, we will subdue you as we did 14 years ago. You will be beaten and to us tribute you will pay. When we are finished, then you will surely know you shouldn't have revolted. This is what you'll say. And the five kings of Canaan reply, we will stand and defend our land. This is the thing we'll do. Many of you will die by our hand and we will be the victors over you. So who's gonna win this battle and what will be the result? Verse 10, now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits. If you wanna learn the Indonesian or the Malaysian language, both of which are very similar, one of the things that you will notice right away is that instead of a plural marker at the end of a word, such as star becoming plural by ending an S, stars, they will simply just say a word twice in order to make it plural. So to say, I see a star, they would say, aku melihat bintang. But in order to say, I see stars, other than getting hit on the head with a baseball bat, they would say, aku melihat bintang bintang. The verse that we just read in the Hebrew does this. It says, Be'emek hasidim be'erot be'erot emar. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, or, and the valley of the fields was pits, pits, tar. So why am I bringing this up? So what, right? The verse here is talking about tar pits. And this verse, along with several other verses in the Old Testament, have pointed to the great possibility of there being immense reserves of oil in the promised land, the land of Israel. One key indicator that oil is normally present is when asphalt is seen bubbling up from the ground. Another possible indication of this is the fact that the Dead Sea is there now. But once there was a fertile valley with plowed fields, just as Genesis tells us. So what could cause trillions of tons of rock to be moved in order to make such a large rift in the earth? 
some people believe that an underground cavern of either gas or oil exploded when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And this is just as reasonable as any other explanation and it very well may be what happened. And this verse is the first indication that oil is there. If you want to track the oil and gas finds, which I do, I track them on the internet, you can go to several different sites which will keep you up to date on these type of things and where the testing is being done. And right now, drilling is being done in the area of the Dead Sea. There's also large uh, indications of large amounts of gas and oil in other areas of Israel's well, which leads some to believe that Israel could at some point become a major supplier of both gas and oil. And if this would not get Israel's enemies up in arms, I can't think of anything else that would. We have this great battle which is being described later in the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which is called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And I can fully believe that the impetus for that battle is the fact that Israel is going to come upon vast amounts of oil and gas and the nations of the world are going to come down and they're going to try to get that from them by force. So this very well may lead to another great Mideast war near you. Verse 10 continues, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. Any place which is full of asphalt pits probably was not the smartest choice for the five kings to line up for battle. They were probably thinking when they went down to this valley that if the battle turned against them, they could flee to the mountains. And that's exactly what did happen. But as they fled, unfortunately for some of them, some of the people fell into these asphalt pits, which is, you know, to me, it's just a real goopy way to die. I mean, think it through. Let's not fight here. But that's what they did. Brings you to verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Avram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Exactly what the people of Sodom had hoped to avoid by getting away from the city to fight is what ended up happening. As the armies of the five kings fled out into the mountains, the city remained unprotected, and all of their goods and all of their people were taken captive. Unfortunately for the conquerors, they took a guy named Lot, who was Avram's nephew and this would cost them in the end. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is Avram the Hebrew, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Avram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Avram. This verse right here marks the very first time that the word or the term Hebrew is mentioned in the Bible. It's tying Avram in with Lot and it's showing a designation of what they are. It's just like the designation of Mamre being an Amorite. The term Hebrew is directly being tied to Avram and from there it's being directly tied to Avram's great 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 grandfather whose name was Eber and we talked about him back in Genesis I think it was chapters 10 and 11. Eber if you remember means he who crossed over and it is signifying that he and his family are the ones who crossed over the Euphrates and away from the area of Babel. The term here is being used for the first time to make the distinction between Avram and the attacking armies who came from exactly where they had crossed over from, the other side of the Euphrates, and also from the people whom he was allied with, the Amorites. He, Avram, is of the chosen people and he is the center of focus in the Bible at this time. Avram is the one that is going to lead to the Messiah. 
the refugee from the battle knew that Avram was related to Lot. And so he came to tell him about what happened, probably hoping for Avram to go and fight against him so that he could get his own stuff back. It doesn't matter what his intentions were, though. He wanted Avram to go and pursue after these people. And that leads us to verse 14, which says, Now when Avram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Avram took no time in responding at all. As soon as he had heard what happened, it says that he got his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and they took off in pursuit. And this shows how large of a company Avram must have actually had. He had 318 men actually ready for battle, but he would have had many others that would have had to stay behind to protect the camp. And in addition to this, it's not just the trained men because there are also women, there are children, there are going to be young men, and there are going to be old men. And so Avram's company probably reached into the thousands. But the number 318 here is very specific. And the normal rule of Bible interpretation is that every number, every name, in fact, every word is important. The question is, why is this curious number 318 used? Why isn't it just rounded up to 320 or down to just 300 people? The answer probably comes from a name of a person who is going to be introduced in the next chapter. He is the chief servant of Avram, and his name is Eliezer, whose name means God is help. Because Avram has no children, the next in line to inherit all, of he has, all that he has is the servant Eliezer. If his name, Eliezer, is turned into numbers, which is a science known as gematria, those numbers equal 318. As the chief of the servants and as the heir apparent of the household, 318 fighting men are chosen from the same group within Avram's home based on Eliezer's name. It is a way of Avram saying, in this battle, God is my help. He is my right hand. And so off they go, Avram and 318 men against many thousands of people who had just destroyed kingdom after kingdom as they came to subdue the rebels in the land. Now the chances seem slim, but I can assure you that with many or with few, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we know a young shepherd boy named David who understood this as he went out to fight against a giant Philistine warrior named Goliath. And here's what it records about him here. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is the day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistine to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. When America engages in a war, it almost always is begun in the darkest moments of the night, just before the dawn. It is the time when the enemy is least ready to counterattack, and the majority of them are asleep. Avram knew this tactic 4,000 years ago when he divided up the forces under him, and he went out against the attacking armies in the middle of the night. 
And this is something that we're going to see happen again and again in the Bible on several occasions. Night attacks allow insignificant numbers of people to overwhelm opposing forces of very great size. If you know the story of Gideon, the judge of Israel, he took only 300 men and he went out and he fought and prevailed against 135,000 Midianites because he had God on his side. After attacking the armies, Abram didn't just stop and revel in the attack, but what did he do? He continued to chase his enemies and destroy them even farther north than Damascus, which is up in Syria. And this was the wise thing to do because it depleted their numbers and it also gave them notice that they would get more of the same if they ever tried to come back and attack in the future. Now, despite being criticized for pummeling the, uh, the withdrawing Iraqis as they left from Kuwait, here they are, they're leaving Kuwait and they're going back with their tail between their legs to uh, their home nation of Iraq, President Bush saved many, many American lives in future battles by continuing to attack them as they retreated on the highway of death. I remember the media was all up in arms about what he did, all of these dead Iraqis, when in fact he followed the biblical model by doing that, by destroying the enemy so that they would not come against them at some point in the future. Countries or political parties which are not willing to fight until the battle is won, they're not showing compassion. I'm sorry, I got a little choked up there. They're not showing any compassion at all. What they're doing is they're showing weakness and they're causing their enemies to want even more to re-solidify and come back and attack again. These people are only causing harm and damage to themselves and their society. We need to remember this and we need to not listen to doves in our government, which these people who harp against the wars that we wage. When you are engaged in a battle, you see it through to its conclusion. You don't just stop and say, okay, we've done enough and we're out of here. You see the battle through. In the end, we only set ourselves up for much worse when we take the dove stand. By following the Bible in all matters, which includes the conduct for war, which the precedent is set right here, we will keep ourselves from many harms and many troubles in the future. And that brings us to verse 16. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Victorious Avram returns home. And when I read this, I always get this picture in my head of all of the people in the camp coming out. You know how the Arabs, they go, and they make those noises and they shake their tambourines and stuff. And this is what comes to my mind, is these people are absolutely re rejoicing in what they're seeing, the return of all of their people. And in a note of true triumph and true completion of the task that he had set out for, Lot is mentioned by name. Avram had been faithful to his nephew and thus to his family name. In the New Testament, Paul explains the importance of taking care of one's own family. Here's what he says in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And I want to interject something that I heard this week. I, I don't want to get too far off base here or too far off of the uh, sermon, but a person that I know is in a youth ministry position and he is completely turned away from his mother. He's blocked her on Facebook, won't call her, won't talk to her, and by doing that, he is showing himself worse than an unbeliever, according to Paul, and he should, if he had any moral rectitude at all, step away from his ministry. He should not be a youth leader following that type of an example. And this is something for every person in the ministry and in the church 
that needs to understand is that whether you like your parents or not, they are your parents. And the Bible mandates in both testaments that we are to honor our parents, not defriend them from Facebook, not take their calls and ignore them. So that is something that I would just like people to think through, is if you are in a ministerial position especially, but in any capacity as a church member, and you are not taking care of your family members, Paul says you are worse than an unbeliever. Anyway, we need to also take care of those who are in trouble. We need to uh, take care of those who are unable to help themselves. We need to take care of those who are sick, who are afflicted. This is the goal and the job of Christians is to be ministers to the people of the world, but how much more our own family. In Sodom, Lot certainly had many friends, but he found out the importance of family when he was carried away. As the proverb says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Each of us certainly has many friends, but as we know, they tend to fade away as the years go by and as our life unfolds. Even brothers and sisters can get annoying and we can, you know, stand back from them for a while. And despite the idea of marriage being a lifelong commitment, that doesn't always work out that way. So far, so good for me and Hedeko. Uh, in a couple more days, we're going to celebrate 28 years together, but not all marriages last. And we need to understand that sometimes things don't work out in that context. But as the Bible says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's someone for Christians or people who want to know who that is, is Jesus. And so let me take just a couple minutes in case somebody is watching by video and they have never understood the importance of understanding who Jesus Christ is and how he relates to us. What happened is that God created, we talked about that in uh, Romans when we were looking at Romans a few minutes before we started the sermon. God created and our first father disobeyed God. And when he did, man fell. And we have all inherited sin, both our own sin and the inherited sin of Adam and we have separated ourselves from God. We cannot call God our father. We can't call him our brother if we are in Adam. And the reason why is because the sin has separated us from him. And so what did Jesus do? He came, the Holy Spirit of God came into the womb of Mary and united in that womb in the person of Jesus Christ. So now he is fully man because his mother is a human being. He is fully God because his father is God. And so Jesus Christ can be that friend that sticks closer than a brother. He can now replace Adam if we will simply put our trust in him. What God does is he says, I have offered my son as an offering of sacrifice for the sins you've committed. If you accept that deed that he did, then I will transfer you from Adam to my son, Jesus Christ. And he is now your federal head. He is the one that is closer than a brother. And all the Bible asks for us to do is exercise faith in order for that to happen. Is to simply say, I have sinned, I cannot save myself, God is infinite and I'm finite and so a finite sin separates me infinitely from my Father. And then I want this salvation that comes through this God-man because he can put his hand on his infinite Father. And when you do that, when you call on the name of the Lord Jesus and hand your sins over to him, he now becomes that friend that is closer than a brother, even closer than Avram was to his nephew Lot, who he went and rescued at the peril of his own life. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. One more thing, and then we'll take communion and we'll be done. This is a poem I wrote about these particular verses. It's called Avram the Hebrew. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, he went along with three other kings 
and they went out to war. It was in the Valley of Siddim, which is now the Salt Sea, that four kings faced off against another five. The five had rebelled and the four couldn't let that be. And so to the land of Canaan, they made their warlike drive. But these forces met in this great battle. But before these forces met in this great battle, the four kings of the east fought against many other clans and defeating each, they gained stocks of war chattel. Everything was going well, according to their plans. After all their victories, before the rebels, they stood and looked across the plowed fields. Yes, life was pretty good. It was the five kings who faced off against the attacking four, but only one side could claim the victory. Such is the way of war. Now the Valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah took off and they fled. Some fell into the tar and probably died in terrible fits, while others headed to the mountains as the dying bled. The conquerors took from Sodom all the spoils they could find. Also, they took along Lot, Abram's nephew too. He was relaxing in Sodom. He wasn't the warring kind. And so off to captivity he went, probably wishing he knew Kung Fu. And one of the fugitives came and told Abram the Hebrew. He was certain that this great man would know just what to do. Abram was allied with the Amorites at this time. And when he heard about Lot, that he was taken captive, he got together 318 of his men and they took off on a dime. Avram was a man who was really quite adaptive. He went with his servants having counted every man and they went off in pursuit, even as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. They attacked them hip and thigh, probably a bloody sight. Avram pursued them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods along with his nephew Lot. And all of Lot's stuff was safe, even his little abacus and all the women and all the people Avram back home brought. Are you willing to step up for the fight when lost souls are being carried off to hell? With you is the Lord of infinite power and might and of his great works, you need to tell. Stand up and proclaim the good news to those who come your way. Please don't forget Jesus is coming soon, maybe even today. Without him in their lives, there remains no hope because all the world lies within the devil's scope. Be brave, Christian warrior, and proclaim the work of Jesus to those you meet each and every day. Jesus came to purge our sins and from the devil rescue us. So please tell the world he is the only way. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Avram and his faithfulness to his family and his faithfulness to you. Thank you that this great man of God is a modern, uh, is a model and a pattern which we can rely on in our own lives when we conduct our lives, whether it's on a national scale or whether it's on a family scale, and how we can know that we are upholding values that you favor when we see what he has done and we live in the same way. But above all, we look to the Lord Jesus and his life and how he conducted it for the absolute prime example of human existence. Help us to be more like him. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and just Give us the grace that we need to show others, the mercy that we need to demonstrate to others, but also at the same time to be firm in our convictions and not to waffle in them by uh, lowering our morals so that other people will like us. It's not as important as towing the line and holding fast to your word and your truth, which is found in the pages of your Bible. We thank you for it and we praise you for it. All glory to you in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.